last week we concluded the message with Galatians 5, chapter 1. And there were two very focal and significant words in Galatians 5, 1. And we said, what does the Lord require of us? What are we supposed to do? And those two words were simply, stand firm. Remember the Greek word, stako, to stake down, to prevent to move, to stand firm, to hold your ground? But what does the believer do? How can you and I do that? We preached it last week. We introduced the very word you've heard for many years in the scripture. But how do you do it? How did the person in the first century and how does a person in the 21st century do those two words? Stako, stand firm. Simon Peter, the apostle, wrote this very need when he wrote to the believers in the five Roman provinces. They were scattered now around. We're now in the first century. Time is somewhere about the mid to late first century, somewhere around AD 63-ish, 67. Probably close to 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the epistle of 1 and 2 Peter, Peter, Simon Peter himself, the apostle, says that he was an eyewitness to the suffering of Jesus Christ. And he was, folks. He was one of the twelve. Remember, he was a fisherman, became a disciple through the witness of his brother Andrew. You can read about that in, in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 40. And if you remember correctly also, it was Jesus who had given Simon the name Petros or Peter, Petra, following his conversion. Once again, John chapter 1, verse 40 and following. And here's a tidbit of information about Peter you may not know or may have only heard about. Tradition says that he was crucified head downward in Rome under Nero. Remember Nero, bad guy. The Roman procurator himself, the emperor, he burned Rome, remember? He set Christians afire. Nero was one of the most notorious, along with Domitian, of the Roman emperors. And then I went back and read some things from William Barclay, who I enjoy his commentate, his commentaries. And he, he quotes first century Clement of Alexandria, actually referring to the wife of Simon Peter when she was martyred. Listen to what he's quoting Clement of Alexandria in the first century. He said this, on seeing his wife led to death, Peter rejoiced on account of her call and her transference to home and called very encouragingly and comfortingly addressing her by name when he said, remember thou the Lord. Shortly after that, the evidence continues to grow that Peter was crucified head down. Matter of fact, tradition says that he felt so unworthy to be crucified like his Lord that Peter begged to be crucified head down. And now God's people are scattered through the five provinces of Rome. But something was happening to these folks. 
They were facing immense, immense persecution. Go back and read the first century Jewish historian. His name is Josephus. And he writes quite a bit about people such as Domitian and also Nero's persecution and what they did. Folks, I won't share that with you in terms of its gory details, for you would leave here with a sick, sick, sick stomach. According to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, the Bible says that Peter refers to the fact that he is writing from Babylon. His epistles. Well, in that day and time, there were three Babylons. There was the historical Babylon in Mesopotamia. However, the church in this Babylon was scattered and really not referred to in the epistles. So, okay, is not Peter referring? Where is he then? Then there was the Babylon of Egypt. And there is no record of Peter ever being in the Babylon of Egypt. But then there was a symbolic Babylon, which happened to be Rome. Throughout history, the name Babylon has stood for evil. Therefore, when Rome began its harassment and its persecution of the church, Christians began to refer to Rome as Babylon. Revelation in particular, verse chapter 17, verse 18. So Peter most likely is writing his epistle from Babylon. Well, no, from what they perceived as Babylon Rome. And here's what Peter's message was. In essence, keep the faith, child of God. Stand firm. This world is not your home. That sounds familiar in the psalm, doesn't it? We're just passing through. Peter uses the word pilgrim. Don't allow the persecution to affect your faith. When everything looks as though God is not in control, don't ever forget God is sovereign. He is still in control. And that was the apostles' message to the Christian in the five provinces in the circle of Rome. Sounds like we ought to hear the same thing today, doesn't it? Words for us, just as clear as to the first century. Because Peter was trying to encourage the brethren. But how do you do it? How in the world do you stand firm in a world that when you get up every morning, the news is depressing? How do you stand firm in a world where so many, if not all people, feel unsafe now to get out of their homes? Used to people would sit out in the backyard or the front or walk around the neighborhood. You see that some, but for the most part, we go home, close our garage doors, lock our doors, and we never come out until the next Day. Most of us who live in subdivisions, most don't even know the people who live next door. Folks, we've gotten ourselves in a world in a mess, just simply in a mess. 
We're afraid to go to the mall. We're afraid to go to the store. Even yesterday at July 4th at the Peachtree Road Race, police were warning, warning folks to make sure you hold on tightly to your valuables. Hold them tightly. Don't take your hands off of them. How do you stand firm for Jesus in a world that threatens your very existence? And it's not going to get better. Well, Peter offers us some advice, folks, that I think we ought to write down in the annals of our books and write them as chapter titles and live by them every day of our life. Because they parallel in exactly what the Word of God says. So I refer you back to our scripture this morning. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to back it up to verse 13, to verse 17. Listen to this. Here's how you do it. Now, Peter is writing a general epistle. It was not written to some one person or a church specifically. It was written to a group. And in this case, Peter, the, the apostle himself, is writing to the Christians. He told you in chapter 1, verse 1, who he's writing to. And here's what he says. Here's how you do it. Listen, verse 13, chapter 3 of 1 Peter. And who will harm you, he says, if you are deeply committed to what is good? Now, do you understand why he says who will harm you? They were being persecuted. No. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you're blessed. Don't fear what they fear or be disturbed. That word disturbed in the Greek is a word we pronounce parasso. It's translated trouble. Don't be worried. Don't be troubled. And here's our scripture verse for VBS. But honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. And however, do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping your conscience clear so that when you are accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. And then verse 17, for it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This morning, I want to give you the advice of Peter. And he tells us that there are exactly four ways of how we stand firm. Now, he's writing to a persecuted group of people. And folks, I'm talking about serious persecution. Nero would put Christians up on a pole, tie them back there on ropes to make sure they're to pour kerosene or some flammable liquid on them and set them afire. So I'm talking about serious death persecution. Serious martyrdom. You were afraid of this man. In the first century. So how do you do it? Peter says here's the very first thing you have to do. Do what is right and good. That's in verses 13 and 14. Do what is right and good. Now I know that goes without saying. 
He says, who harm you if you're deeply committed to what is good? But even if you suffer this persecution, suffer for righteousness, you're blessed. So don't fear what they fear or get all troubled about it. Why? Because he's saying no matter what, God is in control. If you're going to stand firm as a believer living these days in the 21st century, the first thing we're going to have to do is take Peter's counsel to do what is right and what is good. Now, the King James uses the word called follower. Be a follower of what is right and what is good. I actually like that word. I like it even better than the translation in the Holman Christian Standard in this particular case. But the word follower. Zelotai. Zelotai. It doesn't even sound like follower. But if you are Zelotai, it's where we get our word zealot. A zealot is one who is passionate for something. A one that has a zeal to get it done. What Peter is saying to the church is this. Make sure you have a zeal for doing what is good and what is righteous. Obey the law. Do what it says. Obey the Word of God. Do make that your zeal. Make that your passion. If you're going to stand firm, that's what it's going to take. However, in our world today, we have some persons that have a care less attitude toward goodness. Doing what is good and right matters little, and what is right and good is rebelled against by this person. It's ignored, it's cursed, and it's rejected. The person has little conscience about right and wrong. His values are ever so weak, and he could really care less if he does right or wrong. Just ride with the police. Sit down and talk to what happens in this community. You'll understand. But then there are some persons that have a selfish attitude toward doing right and good. If doing right and good will benefit them, then they'll do it. If it helps them, if it meets their need, it enlarges their holdings, then they'll do what is right. But if it costs them, if it demands discipline and control and takes away from their pleasure and their holdings, then they're going to reject what is good and what is right and refuse to do it. They have a selfish attitude. Then some people in this world have a surface or sentimental attitude of what is good and right. In other words, they readily profess to believe in what is good and right, and they want to be known as moral and upright people. But behind the scenes, when no one else is around, they go ahead and live like they want to and do their own thing. And then there's some persons, of course, who are exactly what this scripture, they are zelotai, they are zealous to have an attitude. They are committed to it, they are fanatic about it, and they are a passionate follower of doing what is good and what is right. And the Bible says, you know, what happens is the believer who does good and does what is right is going to be likely to suffer persecution right there in verse 13, 14. It also believes that they know that, that, that the Bible says that no matter what persecution that you face as a child of God in doing what is right and what is good, that you will experience joy. Remember what we've said. Joy is a spiritual heart. It's not a human emotion. People that don't know Jesus can be happy, but folks, those who don't know Jesus cannot experience joy. 
because they don't understand it. They think we're crazy. Joy is something that's deep down in who we are, that no matter what's happening around us, no matter what's taking place, no matter the ultra persecution that's happening, there is peace. That's what Peter is talking about. Folks, you and I could be stricken with a disease. We can have a heart attack. We can have an accident. We can lose everything through an economic slump. A Black Monday can happen at any time, anywhere in the world. A person is not guaranteed that tomorrow they will even be here. Remember the Word of God? Peter says, if you're going to stand firm, the first thing you're going to have to do, all of us together, is that we're going to have to commit to do what is right and what is good in the face of God. Wow. As we say at Southern Seminary, that'll preach. Boy, will it. But not only that, there's a second thing. There's a second thing. Set your heart on the hope found in Jesus Christ. Set your heart on the hope found in Jesus Christ. Now we're at verse 15 now. But honor the Messiah. As Lord in your heart, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks. But I want to center on the first part of that verse. But honor the Messiah as Lord in your heart. Folks, the Bible says that we are to set our heart on the hope found in Jesus. Set. Put it down. Write it in stone. Make our heart be the hope. And then Peter says, if you're going to stand firm, the second thing you must do is make sure when you set your heart, you do what the Word says. Honor the Messiah as Lord in your life. I want to go back to that word honor. In the Greek word, that is in the first person singular, it's not the opposite. Which I know you're saying, okay, maybe so what? Well, that word is not translated on. That is the word for holiness in the Greek New Testament. The word says, make God holy. You think we've forgotten the holiness of God? We see him as Adam, our terror, our day. But y'all, we forget God's a God of judgment. You know, Rod, if you wanted to take your breath and mind my brother right now, God could do that just like that. That's the holiness of God. We've forgotten the very fact of who God is in His holiness. And Peter says, set your heart on the hope that's found in Christ Jesus. Honor God. And I love the translation the Holman Christian Standard uses here. It's the right translation. Even though the word is the word for holiness, it's the word to make holy, to set apart. It's a word that says, look, we've got to understand that if we're going to stand firm, we've got to realize we worship holy God. Faith doesn't look back. Faith always looks when you're following. Faith looks without sight. 
That's hard for all of us to understand. In the analysts of our time who depend on past history and what's done, the Bible says you can't depend on past history. That's done. You look from now forward. And even though you can't see the future, set your heart on that hope. Then I take you to the word hope. In the Greek, it's a little word we pronounce elements. That's not a foreign word, y'all. You've heard me talk about it, especially at Christmas and Easter and other times as well. E-L-P-I-S. Remember what the definition of hope? You know, people say in today's time, we had rain, we had rain in the last week and a half. And people are saying, I hope it will rain. What are they saying? Well, I hope there's going to be a possibility of rain. I know it's forecasting for next Friday, but that doesn't mean anything. Weather in Georgia and Marietta can change in an instant. Hope is, what is hope? The definition of elpis means something that is fact. It's not a possibility. It's a fact. So when you set yourself on the hope, and your heart on the hope, you don't set yourself on a possibility. You set yourself on the very hope that's found in Jesus Christ. And what is that hope, y'all? As Peter said, we just passed it through. This is not home. This is training ground. We are out here and in this old world for a short period of time that cannot be compared in any way, form, or fashion to eternity. Wow. Now there's the third thing. Okay, do what's right. Have a passion. Have to be a zealot. The second thing is make sure you set, commit, put your heart down on the very fact of the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And the third thing, this is what we taught in Vacation Bible School. The third thing, if you're going to stand firm, defend the gospel. Defend the gospel. Now we'll put that scripture back up there that we had for Bible school. And I want us all to say it again right now. Ready? But honor the Messiah as Lord of your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Now, that verse right there, the Bible says, be ready to give a defense. Stand firm, he says. Be ready. Be on guard. Make sure you're always in a constant ready state. The soldier, when he's trained for combat duty, is always in a ready state. He knows what's ahead of him. He or she knows what can take place. But he's ready. He's worked through all the angles. He's been trained. He knows. He's studied the books. He's read the manuals. He's been taught by his commanding officer. And he and she or she is ready to do in a minute's notice whatever it will take. He's ready. They're ready. If we're going to stand firm and do what we say and what, the, what God has commanded us to do, Peter says, you're going to have to be ready. And that readiness means to give a defense. I said it a few minutes. Apologia. Apology. A defense. If you're in McDonald's today, if you're at the restaurant today right after this worship service, and someone, your waitress, comes up to the table and they send you, y'all, y'all folks just really seem happy, you seem joyful and whatever. What's so different about you? What's happened in your life? How are you different? What's how would you respond? Maybe you're standing in the grocery store line and somebody comes up to you right and they notice you and they say, Oh, I I, you, I heard, overheard you talking. You go to Olive Springs Baptist Church. You're a Christian, right? 
Tell me something. Why are you a Christian? This scripture is going to come back to haunt you. And it's going to come back to you and you're going to say, Yow, here is my time that I have to give a defense. What would you say? Don't matter your age. A hundred or thirty or twenty or ten or twelve. You know the more. Bible says, always be ready. Are you ready? Have you prepared? Do you know what you would say? The day is coming right here in Marion, Georgia, and it's not all the way that you and I are going to have to do exactly what the Scripture says. And for all of us in Bible school, we heard it every day, we saw it every day, and we got it in our hearts every day. And kids walked across this aisle constantly memorizing and saying that to the people out here. They knew what it said. What would you say? To give a defense. The Bible says if we are going to stand firm, we must be ready to give a defense. What is a defense? Testimony. A testimony. My life before Christ, how I came to Christ, and my life since my life since then. Write it out, folks. Spend time how you your life before Christ. Everybody has a testimony. Everybody. Your life before Christ. I love Jesus. I was in the church nine months before I was ever born. I went to Bible school at Rosemain Baptist Church. I wasn't a bad kid. At least I didn't think I was. Until one day Bernard Deacon stood at this platform and he kept preaching. And then in vacation Bible school at Olive Springs Baptist Church, others like Harry Alexander, Mr. Abercrombie and others, they began to teach us and tell us that we needed Jesus. We needed our sin forgiven. And the only way to heaven was through the very name of Jesus Christ. And as a nine, ten-year-old boy, I began listening and listening and listening. And one day I made that public profession of Jesus Christ and my Savior, He came came to my life. He never left me. And He's never left me since. No, life has not been easy. But God never promised me He would. It would. But one thing God did promise me is I'd never have to go through anything alone in my life ever again. And He would be there with me. I just took the last minute and shared with you my testimony. Can you do the same thing if you were asked in a fast food line today? So that's what the Bible says. Your testimony. Southern Baptists have been increasingly negligent to share their testimony with anyone in the last 20 years. This broke my heart, folks, but it's pure statistics. Before 1935, Southern Baptists baptized one person for every 20 members. In church growth circles, we refer to this as the baptismal ratio. In other words, how many Southern Baptists it takes to lead one person to Christ. And in 1935, it took 20. Between 19 and 35 and 1959, the ratio was a little less than 1 in 25. We had gone up, took 25 Southern Baptists to lead one to Christ. In 2012... It took 50 Southern Baptists to lead one person to Christ. You know what the statistics are today? One in seven. We got about a hundred of us here. That means we can lead one and a third to Christ, according 
to the statistics. Thank God for the seven that were saved during vacation Bible school. Amen. Amen. Folks, honor the Messiah as Lord in your heart. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone, to anyone that asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And then here's the fourth one, and I'll help Such good counsel, folks. If you write these four things down and we live by them, it'll change your life. Here's the last one. Live out your faith. Live out your faith, 16 and 17. Now, how do you do all this? We just said, do it with gentleness and respect. Keep your conscience clear so that when you're accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. The way for the 21st century believer and all believers is that we, we, the way we react to this world. The Bible says we are to ra- react with gentleness and humility. God's incredible love. Not with harshness, not with a demeaning spirit. Not, you know, I'm convinced God made me short in many respects to look up at everybody. Because God taught me that's what you do. You learn to do that. The Bible says in Romans 12.10, outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12.10, showing that kind of affection. And then I go back to the Master Life, the very focal verse of Master Life Bible study and discipleship. Luke 9.23, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Matthew 5.16, in the same way, let your light shine before man, so that they may see your good works and give glory to God the Father. Folks, if we're going to stand firm for Jesus Christ, doing so will mean that we live out our faith in gentleness and humility. So four things. Do have a zealous spirit to do what is right and good. Set your heart on the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. Be ready to defend the gospel at any time and make sure you live out your faith in With God's incredible love through gentleness and who he teaches us through agape. Folks, if we take these four things and put them to use in our life every day, and so many of you are doing that. But I think we could probably look at one of the four and say we need to do better on this one. Choose one of those and make that your goal to do better. I close with this. Listen. Listen closely. I shook my head in disbelief. But you know, this really couldn't be the right place. After all, I I couldn't possibly be welcomed here. I had been given an invitation several times by several different people, and I finally decided to see what this place was all about. But this just couldn't be the right place. So quickly I glanced down at the invitation that I had in my hand, and And I scanned past the words, and here's what it said. It said, come just as you are, no jacket required. Well, I I was where I was supposed to be. But how could someone like me be welcome in a place like this? So I peered through the window again, and, and I saw a room of people whose faces seemed to glow with joy. You know, they were all neatly dressed, they were adorned in fine garments, and and they appeared strangely clean as they dined in such an exquisite restaurant. 
but I was ashamed. I looked down at my old tattered and torn clothing and I was covered in stains. I was dirty. Matter of fact, I was just simply filthy. I smelled. As I turned to leave, the words from the invitation seemed to leap back out to me and I read them and then it said, Come, just as you are, no jacket required. Well, I decided to give it a shot. Mustering up every bit of courage I could find, I found the door to this restaurant and walked up to the man standing behind that podium. And he said this. He says, your name, sir? And he said it with such a smile. And I said, my name is Randy Cheek. But I couldn't look at him. I thrust my hands in my pockets because they were so dirty and hoping he wouldn't see how dirty my hands were. The guy really didn't seem to notice the filth that I was covered in, and, but he continued with that same smile and he said, Very good, sir. A table is reserved in your name. Would you like to be seated? I couldn't believe what I heard. And a grin broke out on my face and I said, Well, yeah, <laughs> yes, I'd love to be seated. So he led me to a table, and sure enough, there was a place with a place card with my name written on it in deep, deep, dark red. And as I browsed over the menu, I saw many delightful items listed there. They were things like peace and joy and blessings and confidence and assurance and hope and faith and mercy. And then I realized that I was in no ordinary restaurant. I flipped the menu back to the front to see the name of the restaurant that I was in. And right at the top of the, of the menu, it said, God's grace. God's grace. That was the name of this place. Well, the man returned and he says, you know, I recommend the special of the day. For with it, you're entitled to heaping portions of everything on this menu. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. I thought someone as dirty, as smelly, as rough looking as I can have all this. What is this special of the day? And he stood there just as gentle with a smile on his face and looked to me and he simply said, salvation. That was his reply. I'll take it. I practically cried out. A sick, painful ache began to jerk through my stomach and tears filled my eyes. And between my sobs, I said, Mister, look at me. I'm dirty. I'm nasty. I'm unclean. I'm worthy of anything you could ever give to me. I'd love to have all this, but I can't afford it. I have no money at all. Undaunted. That man smiled at me again and he said, sir, your check has already been paid by that gentleman right back here. And he said his name is Jesus. So I turned and I saw a man whose very presence seemed to light the room. He was almost too much to look at. And I found myself walking towards him in a shaking voice. And I said, sir, listen, I'll wash the dishes. I'll sweep the floors. I'll take out the trash. I'll do anything I can do to repay you for all this. And he opened his arms and he 
said with a smile, son, all this is yours, is yours. If you'll just come to me just as you are, no jacket required. Just ask me to clean you up and I will. Ask me to take away the stains and it'll all be done. Ask me to allow you to feast at my table and you will eat beyond anything you could ever imagine. Remember, this table always had your name reserved on it. But you have to accept that gift. Well, I will tell you, I was astonished. I fell at that man's feet and I said, Jesus, please, please clean up my life. Please change me and let me sit at your table and give me more of this new life. And immediately, immediately, I heard the words, it's done. It is finished. And I looked down and and white robes adorned my squeaky clean body. Something strange and wonderful had happened. You see, I felt new. I felt like a weight had been lifted and I found myself seated on that table. That special of the day had been served. The Lord said to me, salvation is yours. And we sat now and we talked for a great while. And I so enjoyed the time that I spent with him. And he told me of all people that he would like for me to come back as often as I could. And how I liked him for helping me and giving me such a helping of God's grace. You see, he made it clear that he wanted me to spend as much time with him as I could possibly spend. Well, it was drawing time for me to leave and go back outside into the real world. And he reached over and whispered to me and he says, don't ever forget. I am with you always. And then he said something to me that I will never, ever forget. He said, my child, do you see all these empty tables throughout this room? And I said, yes, Lord, I see them. What do they mean? And he said, these tables are reserved. But the individuals whose names are on each placard have not accepted their invitations. Would you be so kind as to hand out these invitations to those who haven't joined us yet? And I said, of course. I mean, I was excited, so I picked up the invitation. And he told me, he says, let me say something to you. It's not going to be easy out there. You're going to have to stand firm in what you've been freely given. You're going to have to always be ready to share what I've done for you in this restaurant of grace. And that you're always going to have to do what is right and be a zealous and doing good. And make sure your focus is always on the hope that you found right here through me. He said I'd be called upon to defend my faith, but I must always be gentle and humble in response. Well, I was ready. And then Jesus said, go. As you go. Disciple the nations. And I turned to leave. You know, I walked into God's grace, dirty and hungry and smelly and stained with sin. And my righteousness was just like filthy rags. And Jesus cleaned me up. I walked out a brand new man, robed in white. His righteousness. And so, I'll keep my promise to the Lord. 
I'll go. I'll spread the word. I'll share the gospel. I'll hand out the invitations. I'll stay for, stand firm and we'll never, ever be the same again. No. And by the way, there's a table reserved in your name. And it's here by invitation. And don't forget, come just as you are. There's no jacket required. Lord Jesus, that is the message of Peter. That is your message. May we come just as we are. No jacket is required. Would you stand to your feet? As you do, he's going to lead us, and that's all. Would you sing that right now? And you come. It's awesome. Daniel, with me. And water is on your heart. Let's come. Just as we are. Right now. Come just as you are. Hear the Spirit call. Come just as you are. Come receive, come and live forever, come just as you are, hear the Spirit call, come just as you are.